Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Are you interested in the truth about Iowa's water quality? You won't get it from Iowa's agricultural and political leaders. It's one of the key words, uh, phrases, messages, very controversial for my guest this hour, recently retired University of Iowa research engineer Chris Jones. Jones has spent years researching and writing about Iowa's water quality. And prior to his time at the University of Iowa, he worked for the Iowa Soybean Association, also the Des Moines Waterworks. His latest book is titled The Swine Republic, Struggles with the Truth About Agriculture and Water Quality. Chris Jones joins me in the studio today. Welcome. Okay, thanks, Ben. It's It's been a while since I've been on here. I was wondering maybe if you started farming on the side <laughs> and didn't like me anymore. And, uh, <laughs> we, we like you plenty. Uh, okay. We like all fact-based conversations, okay. right. and you have been known to deliver those, even though they are sometimes controversial. In this book, you write about the toll Iowa Ag has taken on water quality, uh, the failure in the state to de- clean up our dirty water. We want to have our listeners join in this hour with you, Chris. Questions about water quality for Chris. And please push back against any of the ideas you hear Chris may put out here. Um, They're not only welcome, pushed back, but encouraged. And um, Chris can tell you he's handled plenty of pushback in his time. Chris, you start off the book with, uh, let me read a sentence here. At times, I am almost ashamed to admit that this book exists largely because so many people can't bring themselves to say that grass is green and sky is blue, at least not in a public way. Explain what you mean. What are people not admitting that is so obvious to you as a water quality expert? Well, I think there's a real recalcitrance here in Iowa to talk about um, our degraded water in an honest way. And, you know, I'm 62 years old, right? And the water here in Iowa has been polluted my entire life. And so it's become this sort of subject that's it's a, it's a sore subject and we have a difficult time in speaking honestly about it. And I think if we're to solve these problems, which are enormous, firstly, we need to talk honestly about what the problems are and what we need to do to solve them. And so I think uh, in my world, uh, which is um, in, has, has been in research here in recent years, um, the things we say behind closed doors never get discussed out in public, and those things that we talk about behind closed doors are what's causing the problem, what will work, what won't work, and I think the public deserves to hear what we say in those situations. Mm-hmm. This is a collection of essays you've written over the past how many years? Five? Oh, yeah, approximately five. Yeah, okay. Let, you say that, that, let's have you comment on one of the first essays in the book, and it's the one you say has been read by more people than anyone else, um, any other essay in this book, by a long shot. And it's also, you say, due to a map that you created for part of this, along with your friend and colleague, uh, Dan Gillis, uh, Tell us about this particular essay and the map you created for it. It's called Iowa's Real Population. So I looked at the what we call the Huck 8 watersheds in Iowa. There's 56 of them. Huck stands for hydrologic unit code. And I looked at the livestock populations in each of the Huck 8 watersheds. I looked at literature values for the amount of waste 
that the animals um, excrete or produce and uh, how that relates to the amount of waste a human being um, excretes or produces. And then I converted the livestock population or the, the fecal uh, amounts produced by life, livestock into a human equivalent. And then I just uh, put that in an Excel file, uh, sorted it, and started looking for uh, places around the world that corresponded to the, that fecal equivalent uh, population. And then I dropped those place names onto the Iowa map that shows all the watersheds. And so, for instance, upstream of Des Moines, we have Chicago, Tokyo, uh, Rome, Oklahoma, Alabama, and um, and so that really puts into context. So, yeah, yeah. Just to be clear here, when we when you say Tokyo, Paris, Chicago, upstream of Des Moines, upstream in what way? So in fecal human fecal equivalent, human so, waste equivalent. Sure. So uh, there's an equivalent number of uh, people living upstream of Des Moines uh, from those places I just mentioned. And so if we convert the livestock. Uh, populations to a human equivalent in terms of the fecal waste, that's the number of people that would be living upstream of Des Moines uh, in those place names that I just mentioned. Mm. And so um, Iowa has 3 million people, but when we look at our fecal waste that's being generated by all our livestock animals, we have an equivalent population here of 168 million people, which of course is like four Californias. And so dealing with this waste, you know, it's a colossal challenge, right, if we're going to be able to get the um, water quality that we want in Iowa. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in a follow-up essay called Fifty Shades of Brown, you compare Iowa to other states. How do we compare in this way? So we're number one. Uh, we, we have the most fecal waste of any state. Um, Delaware is second. There's some other states around us that are pretty high, Wisconsin and Nebraska, but we are... Definitely number one when it comes to the amount of, um, you know, feces that we produce here with our livestock. Mm -hmm. What are the implications of that? We've talked about this not just with you on this program, but with many, uh, you know, our streams, rivers, and ponds. And, and as you pointed out, your entire life, my entire life, I've grown up in Iowa too, we've had the same water. So it may not be apparent to people that there is... There, there was clean water at one time, and it just hasn't been now for generations. So when we do the science on that stuff, that is a problem because none of us really know what our streams could or should look like. And so when we try to assess streams, we look for what we call reference streams and those that are uh, streams that are undisturbed by human activity. Well, we don't have any in Iowa. All our streams are highly disturbed. And so this is a real uh, thing when we try to communicate with pu with the public about our water quality. And so when people go out and they drive across the countryside and they look at their our streams, they think, well, this is the natural condition. This is the way they should look. And it's not. The streams that we see now are not the way they looked prior to European settlement. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you to read from uh, one of your essays. Uh, we have about four minutes before we take a break, but if you could read a passage from one of your essays, and I'll remind our listeners in the meantime, my guest this hour, retired University of Iowa research engineer, water quality expert uh, Chris Jones, the Swine Republic struggles with the truth about agriculture and water quality. Chris, you have a passage to, to read. So sure, let me say first that 
um, there's a guy in the legislature. Um, his name's Chuck Eisenhart from Dubuque. I know him pretty well. And a few years ago, he said, well, you can write about anything you want except social justice. And so uh, me being who I am, I took that as an invitation to write about social justice. And um, what he meant by that was, you know, that would be the only thing that would really get me in trouble. And <laughs> So you went right for it. So I went right for it. And, um, and so this is in the essay called God Made Me Do It. And I write that our water here in Iowa is polluted just as legally as black people were segregated. The agricultural and political establishment have made sure of that. They're so confident in their power that they're not even shy about telling us that. But should that be the standard, legal or not legal, for an industry and its practitioners who mostly claim to embrace conservative and traditional and moral values, should not the standard be what is just? Call me crazy, but if agriculture had the moral high ground here, they probably wouldn't need communicators to force feed us on how righteous they are. Mm -hmm. And so we see that quite often, you know, just this endless stream of um, propaganda, I'll just call it that, uh, from the ag advocacy organizations about how good our water is or how much better it is getting or um, even from some in the legislature that say there's nothing wrong with the water. Well, we've, we've heard just recently the ag secretary, Mike Nag saying we're, we're making – we're making progress, and we are. That's factually true, isn't it? Well, you know, in some places, things have improved. There's no denying that. We can find places in Iowa where things have improved. But in terms of the nutrient pollution with nitrogen and phosphorus, there's very little evidence that statewide uh, loading for the two main nutrients has decreased. And so we've published papers. I've published papers with... Other folks that show um, nitrogen uh, loads in our streams doubling since 2003, phosphorus loads increasing 40 percent between 2004 and 2017. And so, you know, it's really um, not right to say that um, nutrient loading in our streams is declining. Mm -hmm. And uh, tie that together with, you know, where our water goes. So. Remind us again of the effects when when that water full of nutrients flows downstream. So, of course, all our water drains to the Mississippi River and the Gulf of Mexico, and every year we see a dead zone um, forming off the coast of Louisiana and Mississippi. And so these nutrients feed these big algae blooms down there in the Gulf. When the algae die, they consume oxygen and they leave the water unsuitable for the species that we like, which would be fish and shrimp and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so I always say, you know, look, we're killing off part of an ocean. <laughs> you know, we should know if we're 1,500 or 2,000 miles away and we're still call, uh, killing off part of an ocean, we're doing something wrong here. Yeah. And um, Chris, uh, on this program, I've it's been a few years, interviewed a, a shrimper on his boat mm -hmm. in the Gulf uh, describing the dead zone. So this has a huge economic impact. Um, regardless of what you think about the environment, there are what we are doing here in the Midwest is causing... Right. We, we are degrading water, um, you know, in this case, a couple thousand miles away, uh, what we're doing here. And so what is our, you know, to tie this back to the essay that I just read from, what is our moral obligation here? 
And so we can sort of say, well, we're more important than the shrimpers down in the Gulf. Uh, the Iowa farmer is more important and uh, he should be able to do that. Well, you know, I reject that. I think there are moral questions here that we need to examine. Retired University of Iowa research engineer Chris Jones is with us. Um, his new book, The Swine Republic, struggles with the truth about agriculture and water quality. And Ben Kiefer with Chris Jones back in just a moment. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This season, Garden Variety wants to help you flourish. Each week, our favorite horticulturists drop by with fresh tips. Subscribe and dig in. Head to ipr.org garden or find Garden Variety wherever you get your podcasts. My guest this hour, retired University of Iowa research engineer Chris Jones. His book, The Swine Republic, struggles with the truth about agriculture and water quality. In it, it's a collection of essays he's written over the past approximately five years about the toll um, Iowa's ag has taken on water quality. Uh, his blog essays detailing the state's failure to clean up our dirty water. Uh, and it's uh, become quite controversial. One of the emails that came in just a f- moment ago, uh, Chris, Mike emailing with the subject line, we are number one in number two, for a chuckle. Uh, mm-hmm. And he says, you're a hero to all who care about water quality in, in Iowa. So to pass that along, before we get uh, to calls and other emails, uh, tell us a little bit more about why you felt the need to write this book to begin writing essays after an already extensive career a few years ago. You write in the introduction that there was a particular meeting that you went to that was a turning point. What can you tell us about that? So, yeah, that's about five years ago. Um, I was at a meeting with other university people at a big ag organization here in Iowa, and it was at that meeting that I really— came to the conclusion that the industry was not operating in good faith when it came to this. And so I felt that, um, you know, I was a public employee. I worked at the University of Iowa um, and a public servant. And I felt, you know, from that day on that if I was going to somehow reconcile what I was doing and taking money from the public, um, you know, as part of my job, that I needed to do it honestly and speak honestly about what was going on. And so, you know, that's the um, sort of genesis, if you will, of the book and the essays and and my writing in general. And so in my previous jobs, I had done a fair amount of writing and knew I was an adequate writer. And I think... Um, the blog um, offered an outlet uh, for my frustration, I guess. Mm-hmm. There's no denying that. And so I tried to talk about these things, you know, in a real sort of nakedly honest way and also to make them um, enjoyable to read. And so, you know, when I read something, I want to uh, have fun reading it. I think people don't want to read, general audiences don't want to read the dry science. They don't have the patience for it. And so to communicate with general audiences, you have to talk to general audiences in the way that they speak to each other. 
And so we in academia, we speak to each other very well, but we don't speak to the public very well. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I tried to do. I tried to bring it to the general audiences in a language they would understand. You had very frank, um, with humor, uh, well-written essays that gained the attention of people very quickly because, as you said, you're you're an employee of a public institution here, the University of Iowa. You were until you recently retired. Two state senators pressured your superiors to have your blog removed from the university's website. Walk us through that story. Well, this was at the end of March. I had... um March of 2023? Yes, and I had uh, written a piece about uh, trout fishing in Iowa, and um, I I really objected to um, Farm Bureau and other um, ag entities here in Iowa taking credit for the improved trout fishing that we had. And so, you know, a lot of that ties back to research that fisheries biologists had done at Iowa DNR and... I thought assigning that to farmers was just really sort of unconscionable. And so I wrote that one. Not long after that, um, I was told that these two legislators um, came to the university of Lo- university lobbyists and said, look, you know, you got to do something about this if you expect us to continue to consider funding requests for the various programs at the University of Iowa. And, and so um, – my boss told me this and, you know, I knew in writing these essays that people in power were not particularly happy with them. And so I knew this all along was a possibility. I agreed to write one more. Uh, we we agreed that I would write one more um, for my university website, sort of a sayonara thing. And I would consider taking the blog um, to an off-campus domain uh, which I did consider that, and I wrote my last piece, and it was requested that I edit it so that it wouldn't appear that this was happening because of pressure from the legislature, and that I objected to. I thought that this was not a free speech issue, but rather an ethics issue where you know people can't mention uh, something that objectively happened or even imply that it happened. And at this point, I started to, you know, think about whether I really wanted to work anymore. Um, and so that is the story of the ending of the blog in my retirement. We want to get to callers. My guest, Chris Jones, if you've just joined us, uh, his new book, The Swine Republic Struggles with the Truth About Agriculture and Water Quality. There are a lot of people who want to talk to you, Chris. I'm going to go to callers. We'll go through these if I can ask our callers to get right to the point or the question so that Chris can respond or we can hear and we can have as much uh, input from our listeners this hour as possible. Let's go to Barney. Barney and Kellogg. Welcome to the program, Barney. Thank you. Welcome. I appreciate your honesty, Chris. Uh, yes, a point I'd like enjoy making. I'm a farmer. Anyway, as a kid... I'm 70 years old, just over. As a kid, when you drove at night, your windshield was covered with bugs. Now you can drive all night. There's hardly a bug on it. They're the bottom of the food chain. We're the top of the food chain. What affects the bottom, I've always been told, affects the top of the food chain eventually. And we have really destroyed the bottom of the food chain. So, uh, I, know, I know someone that has taken a recorder out in a prairie 
which the noise was incredible, and then went in a cornfield, and there was dead silence. Barney, thanks for your, your comment, your observation. Take care. You say you're a farmer, right, Barney? Yes. Thank you. Yes. All right. Good farming to you, then. So I am. This isn't my field of study, right? Entomology, but I totally believe that this insect apocalypse is a real thing, and so I agree. Um, when I was a kid, I mean, the bugs were everywhere, um, and now we we don't see the insects that we used to. And of course, the monarch butterfly was sort of this iconic species that we got really worried about. But look what we do to the landscape. Uh, all our ditches now, we mow all our ditches. We even plant crops in our ditches. Well, you know, 50, 70 years ago, those ditches were filled with weeds. Um, and so we've really sterilized the landscape. And our farms look really clean and neat, but that's, um, you know, that's been at a cost of the native species here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the quotes in your book related to what you just said, Iowa agriculture followed no road map traveling from 1840 to 2022. Uh, You write then, one decision led to another, something akin to what is known as the drunkard's walk, where the direction of each step is somewhat random, but also somewhat dependent upon the previous step. Mm -hmm. We could spend hours talking about uh, the decades between 1840 and, and the present time. And, I mean, the, the biggest milestones on that, uh, the, the, the tiling underneath our, our land. Right? So that's one of the big ones for sure. And so we had to drain a lot of this land. And so we had thousands upon thousands of wetlands here in Iowa. And we have very few left. I think 0.01% of our wetland area still remains because we lowered the water table with drainage tile, which we continue to do. Right, and so this is a climate change adaptation that farmers um, are doing. Is that as it gets wetter, they want more tile, and so you know we have over two million miles of tile in Iowa. Farmers are probably spending on the order of a hundred million dollars a year on new drainage tile. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to our phones. Uh, Walt is with us from Cedar Rapids. Uh, you're on with uh, Chris Jones. Welcome to the program, Walt. Thank you. Uh, all these stream monitors that have been operated by the universities, I take it for a while uh, now, is there a way to fund one or two of those in a local area, say like Isaac Walton or somebody that would be interested in promoting the clean water and monitoring it still? Okay, I, I want to ask Chris to back up here for those who are not up to speed on this, what happened in the last legislative session. Chris, remind us. So after I um, you know, said I was retiring on the blog, um, you know, on the on the issue with the blog. Then three weeks later, they came back and sponsored a bill that would defund the sensor network and, in effect, it reduced the budget for the Iowa Nutrient Research Center by $500,000, which was exactly the amount that the Iowa Nutrient Research Center gave, it was going to give to the University of Iowa for the upcoming fiscal year to fund the monitors. So the intention was clear that the legislature wanted the Nutrient Center to defund the what was the reason given for that defunding? So the reason was they wanted to take that money and put it into farm practices. Uh, so that money was going over to IDOLS, Iowa Department of Agriculture and Land Stewardship, to fund more um, farm practices. So, it, so we've learned that the Nutrient Center is going to fund the sensor network at a lesser amount for fiscal year 24, which begins July 1st. And so my um, take on that is the Nutrient Center is giving the University of Iowa a bridge here to secure 
some time to secure other funding, uh, sustainable funding for the sensor network, whether that be through foundations or individuals or you know grant proposals and so forth. I don't know. And of course, I'm retired now. And so I get emails on this all the time. So people definitely are interested in, in you know, trying to help, uh, you know, the sensor network continue along. Mm-hmm. And just to make it perfectly obvious, why do you need a monitor system? So, you know, what I always say is the worse water, the worse your water is, the more you need uh, a robust monitoring, right? And so... Um, we need monitoring to accurately quantify the loading of nutrients that are leaving the state. This brings credibility to the nutrient strategy. And so we see people in the media all the time, our Secretary of Agriculture for one, saying, making these claims about the progress on water quality. Well, you know, this is taxpayer dollars that are go- that's going to this stuff. And so that money should be spent in an accountable way. And, you know, you do that by monitoring, right? Uh, You don't do it by counting the number of terraces that have been strung across the countryside. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to our phones. Lori is with us in Iowa City. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the program. Asking you to be concise so we can get as many listeners on as possible this hour with Chris. Thank you so much for this important information that you're sharing. First of all, um, a 22 to 23 years ago, my daughter worked for the U.S. Geological Survey Office in Iowa City, and their project was to identify and plot private wells in Iowa. And the purpose was so that there could be decisions made about where to locate CAFOs. Do you know whether that kind of data was has ever been used in policy decisions um, and whether it would be uh, accessible at this point in time? So I'm not an authority on what you speak of there in that particular project. I do know that um, we have over 7,000 private wells here in Iowa that have been contaminated with nitrate above the drinking water standard. We have thousands more that have been contaminated with E. coli. We have about 60 uh, community water supplies, most of them using well water, that have to remove nitrate from the uh, drinking water so that um, safe water can be supplied to the um, customers. And so, you know, the question, I guess, is, um, you know, are the proximity of wells to these CAFOs, uh, an issue when they cite the CAFOs. And, you know, I don't think it is considered very often. Um, In some cases it may be, but, I mean, we see northwest Iowa, there's a CAFO on average in every section, right? That's a square mile. And so there's wells up there. And Mm -hmm. so we're definitely citing CAFOs in close proximity to drinking water wells. Lori in Iowa City, thank you for your call. Uh, Before we go to break, we can squeeze in Tyler. Tyler calling from Windsor Heights. Hi, Tyler. Welcome. Hey, thank you, Ben, for having me. Sure thing. And yeah, my uh, my question is for Chris Jones. Um, Around this time last year, I sent out a tweet of pro-ethanol support. My information was doxxed. Chris Jones and, and other University of Iowa professors joined in on liking that tweet, sharing my information. My question is, 
is if your water information is so true, then why do you have to engage in such immoral social media behavior? Tyler, thanks. So, you know, I, I, I know of this person. I've never met him, never talked to him until this very second. I know he thinks <laughs> I had something to do with doxing him. I know nothing about this, nothing about it. So. Okay, okay, we'll leave it at that. Um, um, on, on that point, for anyway, uh, you write in here too. Um, I mean, uh, of course, Republicans have cold, controlled our legislature and the, the governorship for many years, but uh, you say to think that Democrats are not culpable in all this is totally wrong. Explain what you mean. So, some of our polluted water is red and some of our polluted water is blue, okay? And so, I think. Um, I get this question all the time, you know, what can I do? And somebody in the audience inevitably shouts out, uh, well, vote. And I, I say, and I just said it last night, if you think you can just drag your body to the voting booth and check a box and you're going to get clean water, it's a fantasy because um, both parties have been complicit in this. We see that uh, both parties have... Um, really uh, facilitated the production system that we have after knowing how much it pollutes our water resources. And so, um, yes, there are some partisan differences on this um, that I think are apparent. But again, I think just to assign blame to the Republicans is not accurate. Mm -hmm. Before we go to break, let me share this from one of our listeners, Jim, writing, Iowa's politicians may not want to know how badly contaminated our water is, but maybe there are enough citizens who do want to know what they w that they would be willing to pitch in on the task of stream monitoring. Is this a viable idea? If not, what actions other than voting uh, do you suggest, Chris? We've got about 30 seconds before the break. Monitoring is a way for the average person to get involved. That's been the case for a long, long time. We had Iowa water program here in Iowa that was defunded by the legislature. So it's possible for people to get involved. You know, it's more difficult now. Okay. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with retired University of Iowa research engineer Chris Jones. State water expert has been writing about this in a blog that has uh, received a lot of attention and controversy. Uh, he's put this collection of essays, some 60 essays, in a new book, The Swine Republic Struggles with the Truth About Agriculture and Water Quality. Back with Chris Jones in just a moment. You've been listening to an archive edition of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. You already know you carry all of your favorite podcasts in your pocket. But did you know you can carry all of Iowa Public Radio too? Just tell your phone to play Iowa Public Radio, News, Studio One, or Classical, anytime for your favorite stream. My guest this hour, retired University of Iowa research engineer Chris Jones, author of a collection of essays, the Swine Republic struggles with the truth about agriculture and water quality. Let me start off, Chris, with an email from Rob and Ames. One of the things he writes about is something I 
really am glad he raised uh, because uh, I, I imagine one of the misconceptions that may be taken that you're anti-farm, anti-ag. Uh, he writes, as the majority of Iowa farmers self-identify they are, quote, above average in managing their farms and nutrient loss, what can be done to address the refrain that every farmer is above average? So that's interesting. And, of course, that comes from... Uh you know, Lake Wobegon, right? Garrison Keeler and mm-hmm. everybody was above average. All the kids were above average. And yes, I I think in one of the essays, I mentioned that. And so what can be done? Well, you know, I always say we need laws, right? And we need uh, laws on this production system that we have. And so I always make this analogy. If you live in a town of 100 people, do you need a lot of rules and laws to make it work? No, you don't. If you live in Chicago, yeah, you need rules and laws or you have chaos. And so if one person lives leaves their car on the street after a snowstorm, right, you have chaos. And so the same goes with farming. Do we need to regulate a 10-acre cornfield in western Kentucky? Well, maybe not. But here, almost all of our land is in production. And so if we're going to get the environmental outcomes that we want, we need rules and laws. And we know that there's things that are common sense, that um, we know are good or bad practices that we should either require or uh, prevent from happening. And so I am really an advocate that we need to regulate this system. Yeah. What type of conversations, when you raise these points, do you have with actual farmers? So farmers, uh, you know, and many people, I think, know this, that, you know, Farmers love it because it's sort of this ultimate freedom, right? You have this big piece of land. You can do basically whatever you want. I mean, there's really a lot of America, right, embedded into that idea that, you know, you have the freedom to do what you want on this piece of ground. Well, here's the thing. You know, if what you do affects everyone, then everyone should have a say in what you do. And so what farmers do in terms of the environment, it's affecting us all. It's degrading the water here for every person in our state. As a result of that, I think we ought to have a say in how these operations are conducted. Let's go to Mike in Des Moines, listening in Des Moines. Mike, uh, welcome to the program. You have a question. Uh, Yes, thanks, Chris, for everything you do. I have a question. I've got concerned about the Supreme Court decision with regard to waters of the United States, Clean Water Act. You were at Flood Center. Uh, do we have a potential for more flooding with the results of the Supreme Court decision? Well, I would say, you know, the main thing for flooding is rainfall. And so we know these big deluge events like we had here in eastern Iowa in 2008 and central Iowa in 1993. That's what drives the big disastrous floods that we have are these freakish uh, precipitation events that we get now with climate change. Now, does that mean what we do on the landscape has no uh, bearing on flooding? No, it doesn't. And so the loss of perennial species, uh, when we think about the native uh, prairie and wetland here, uh, a lot of surface area from those plants um, could absorb the raindrops, and that surface area is out there all year round. Now we only have vegetation out there for about four months out of the year, and so the conversion from perennials to annual plants has affected stream flows. I don't see the recent Supreme Court decision affecting flooding here very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gary in Davenport writing in an email 
uh, wants to know how hog fecal waste disposed of by big ag and how is it disposed of by big ag in Iowa, he writes. Is it sprayed over fields as manure, as is done by Chinese-owned hog operations in North Carolina? This is an important point because uh, we have over 20 million hogs at any one time in Iowa. And as you point out so well in this book, so much waste, how is it disposed of, used on the land? How does it get into our streams, the nutrients? So I think we've tried to get away from surface application here. And so a lot of it is disked in or injected, as they say, uh, which, you know, may or may not be better. I know in the Lake Erie uh, watershed, there's some concern that um, injection has perhaps increased the flow of dissolved phosphorus uh, into the tile lines and then into the streams and ultimately Lake Erie. And so from my perspective, I don't think the methods of application here are the main issue. The main issue is the amount. And so we know that our master matrix laws here and the manure management plans that are connected to those laws endorse an amount of nutrient beyond what the crop needs. We know that. The formula was based on the old yield goal uh, approach that was largely discredited 25 or 30 years ago. Well, that's how our master matrix uh, plan was written with the manure management plans. And thus, we allow farmers to overapply nutrients when they're using manure. Mm -hmm. Dennis is with us in Polk City. Dennis, welcome to the program. Hi. Um, I just have to admit, uh, Chris, that... When I drive across the border into Wisconsin and Minnesota, everything clears up. Um, they have buffer zones near the creeks. They have uh, buffer zones everywhere. And I just don't really uh, – what is stopping Iowa from doing some of those things to mitigate the um, runoff? So I'll just address Minnesota specifically. They have a law in Minnesota that requires all perennial streams have a 50-foot buffer on each side. We tried that here in Iowa. Um, Conservation Districts of Iowa, which is not exactly a real liberal group, um, suggested that the state have a 30-foot buffer on all our uh, perennial streams. That thing was shot down by our Secretary of Agriculture. And so I say this all the time. Look, buffering streams is conservation 101. We see farmers farm right up to the edge of the stream all over the state. How on earth are we going to do all this hard stuff like cover crops over half our land, for example, when we can't even do the easy stuff like buffering streams? If we cannot protect the riparian corridors here on our streams, it truly will be hopeless in improving water quality. Mm -hmm. Chris, how do your critics respond to uh, the fact-based scientific arguments that you make and and saying the grass is green, the sky is blue? What 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 do you hear there to counter that? Well, a lot of times you hear that farmers are doing so much better than they were 50 years ago, and so let's examine that. Uh, the main thing we can look at is tillage. And so, you know, we had the old mold board plow. We've probably gotten away from that. Maybe only about 20% of our acres um, are plowed in that way. And that's where, that's the old John Deere plow where soil was turned over on top of itself. That's a, a practice that we know is leaves the soil very vulnerable to erosion. 
So we've tried to get away from that. Well, why did we get away from it? Well, in 1985, in the Farm Bill, um, we had conservation compliance, and it required farmers to adopt a soil conservation plan if they were farming on highly erodible land. That worked. We did see almost an immediate uh, manifestation and improved um, erosion here and improved water clarity. And so that was a law, okay? That was a law. And so why don't we try that approach again? We know that it worked. We know for a certainty that conservation compliance worked. Mm -hmm. Jacob in Iowa City writing with a historical reference here and a question. He says, I'm a huge proponent of improving water quality in Iowa. That said, what would you say to someone who asks about the effect of the waste of millions of bison that once roamed Iowa on the water quality then? Okay, good question. And so we did have a lot of bison here. Whether it was in the millions or not, I don't know. But there were a lot of them. And yes, they're big animals. And yes, they do excrete a lot of waste. The difference we had then was, as I said, perennial cover was across the landscape, right? And so we had a lot of surface area to intercept overland runoff. And so bacteria from an animal, uh, E. coli, it's a particle. It's a tiny particle, but it's a particle. And so it gets intercepted by uh, plants that are on the landscape. And as a result, we know that our prairie streams were clear. We know that they had low nutrient levels and very likely they had very low bacteria levels as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Richard in Des Moines writes, uh, if you want a good example of how clean Iowa's waterways are, take a look at the Mississippi River on Google Earth or any other satellite imagery. Before Iowa, the river is green, blue. After Iowa, it turns poop brown, according to Richard. Our borders don't even cover that much of the river. Is that true? Can you see it from a satellite view? Well, you can see uh, things from satellites, and so a classic example is where the Minnesota River comes into the Mississippi at St. Paul, Minnesota. And so the Minnesota is always brown and muddy, and the Mississippi is clear. I should tell you that the Mississippi River uh, above Dubuque or thereabouts is probably the cleanest river we have in Iowa. And so the upper Mississippi above Dubuque Compared to all our interior streams, the Mississippi would probably be the best. Mm -hmm. Okay, as we finish up uh, this hour of conversation, uh, tell us uh, what you see in the future. How hopeful are you um, about overcoming major obstacles to change? And and remind us, what are those obstacles to change? Well, you know, I know people don't like me saying this, but a lot of these streams in western Iowa I do see as being kind of hopeless. And because that is because they've been straightened. Uh, what we call incised, and so they erode downward, and they're all down in these canyons. And I just, it's hard for me to see that these are ever going to come back without some just colossal input of public money. And so I think we do have some streams that do still have some integrity. They're primarily in northeast Iowa, the upper Iowa River, the Turkey River um, are two, uh, some Parts of the upper cedar are in decent shape. The upper Wapsi uh, is in decent shape. The Boone River is is not too bad. And so I th- really think we need to identify these streams that still have some integrity and spend all our money there and try to keep something here 
that is worth saving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you do a mental exercise in this book um, referring to something that Wendell Berry uh, once uh, wrote about. You reference his words about how each generation finds contempt and disgust with previous generations. How does that have a bearing on this conversation? So we look at our children, uh, and you know we have this issue that many young people don't want to stay here in Iowa, right? And so young people now, they want amenities, and they want amenities that are uh, outdoor amenities, and so they want to enjoy nature. And so I think our sort of you know contempt for that idea here that we have a right to enjoy nature, I think our um, future generations are going to look back at at us here and say, you know, how crazy was that? Um, you know, my own children, I know they want to be outdoors. They want to enjoy, um, nature when it still retains some, it's some of its integrity. And I would say future generations are going to really go not look kindly on us about that. Mm -hmm. Chris, remind us of one of your main inspirations. That's two of them that you name in this book, Aldo Leopold and Howard Zinn. Tell us how they inspired you. What's what's the support here you've received from their words? Well, I like Howard Zinn, and I know, you know, I say he wrote the most hated book and the most loved book uh, in the U.S., and the reason I like Zinn is because um, he basically um, turned his back on academia. He was a he was in academia. He turned his back in academia and said, you know, screw you guys. I'm going to take my stuff straight to the public, straight to general audiences. And so I got some inspiration from that. And so I'm not the greatest scientist in the world. I, you know, am a mediocre scientist. There's just no doubt about that. But, you know, I got some inspiration that you can have a positive effect by taking um, – your work to general audiences. And so that's what I got from Zen. The other thing I get from Zen is you really only get big change um, from the grassroots. And so it's really a fantasy to think our politicians are going to fix this. They're just not. They're not going to do it. We have to demand change at the grassroots level. Mm-hmm. Aldo Leopold, of course, is the godfather of, of this stuff, and he writes uh, pretty uh, – movingly, uh, wrote pretty movingly about these things. And the thing I like about Aldo, I say he's like a George Orwell type figure. Uh, what he says really uh, rings true today. And so you read Aldo and it really sounds like he re- wrote it just you know last week. And so that's what I love about Aldo. Mm-hmm. In closing, give us some ideas about how people listening can pursue this conversation, take action, what resources are out there, and do tell us where can people find your, your blog? Does it still exist yeah. online? So firstly, uh, I have a substack. It's riverraccoon.substack.com. Uh, you can go to that. I'm writing for that. I'm trying to... Um, write something there about every week. And so I'm going to do some different things with my sub stack, cover some different topics. Um, and so there's that. Um, and what was the first part of your question? What can they do? Yeah, some, so, some resources that people can find out more uh, about our water quality and uh, perhaps uh, act. Well, I think, you know, EPA and USGS, which was mentioned by a caller, both have really nice websites. Um, the Iowa Flood Center has a really good uh, website that allows you to look at a stream stage here. Um, the Iowa Water Quality Information System 
is still up and running um, here at the University of Iowa. You can learn a lot there about Iowa water quality. As far as what you can do, uh, what I tell people, go to county supervisor meetings, go to city council meetings, and agitate for clean water. That is what has to happen. If it's going to get better, um, we have to reclaim this whole thing from the industry and from the politicians, and we have to demand it and act. Okay, thank you very much. Chris Jones, his book, The Swine Republic, Struggles with the Truth About Agriculture and Water Quality. Chris, thanks for coming in. I wish you a happy retirement, um, whatever your pursuits are, and we hope they continue to be focused on water quality to whatever degree. Okay, Ben, thanks for having me. River to River today, produced by Samantha McIntosh. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.